0: Well, good morning, church. There was this man who walks into a restaurant and he orders a drink. And as soon as he receives the drink, he throws it in the waiter's face. The man immediately says, oh, I'm so sorry. I have a horrible compulsion. I can't help it. Whenever someone hands me a drink, I just want to throw it in their face. The man then asks for another drink. The waiter says, will you do promise not to throw it in my face? And the guy responds, I'm going to, to do everything I can not to throw it in your face. I'm, I'm really working hard to, to resist. The waiter leaves. He comes back with another drink and he hands it to the man. And wouldn't you know it, he throws the drink in the waiter's face again. The waiter says, I thought you said you wouldn't do that. I know the man responds, but this compulsion is so strong. Forgive me, I am so sorry guy feels so badly about what he has done, he checks himself into a clinic. For one month, he gets intense psychotherapy to deal with his compulsion. When he gets out of the clinic, the first thing he does is he goes back to that same restaurant he's waited on by the same waiter. I'm cured, he said, give me a drink. The waiter's a little apprehensive, and he says, well, wait a minute, I had to change my shirt the last time you were here. I'm not sure I can trust you. Guy says, "I am cured. I promise." The waiter leaves. He comes back with another drink. The guy looks at the drink and he throws it right in the waiter's face again. Well, I thought you said you were cured. The waiter screams. The man replies, "I am cured. I still have the compulsion. I just don't feel guilty about it anymore." <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to cut it. Is that the cure? to our sinful tendencies and compulsions to just feel less guilty about it. How do you handle your guilt? Well, that introduces us to ten guys who are forced to address the guilt inside. Ten guys who showed no remorse whatsoever when attacking their brother Joseph and selling him off to some slave traders. And so, if you're not there, look with me in your Bibles through Genesis chapters 42 through 44. We're going to tackle three chapters this morning. Obviously, we won't get to all the verses, but we will get the sweeping sense of what happens in verses 42 through 44. We are looking at the life of Joseph. And what a roller coaster ride it has been. He's gone from the pit to promotion to prosperous to being proposition to prison. Now, to the palace. Well, how did he end up in the palace? Well, we left off with Joseph finally being released from prison after his life was on hold for two years. Two years on hold because the man he had helped let him down when he needed him the most. Know the feeling? Has the failure of someone else put your life on hold? Has the disappointment in people moved to disillusionment or worse, cynicism? Do you wonder if you can ever trust again? Well, in those two uneventful years stuck in a dungeon, God was working in Joseph's life, preparing him for what we will encounter next, as written for us in chapters 42 through 44. Now, to set things up for today, I want you to, first of all, if you're in your Bibles, and I hope you are, go back to chapter 41 for a moment. I want to set, set it up a little bit here, and we go to verse 39. Chapter 41, verse 39. Now, this is Pharaoh's response to Joseph's interpretation of his dream. And he says to him, verse 39, chapter 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, meaning the interpretation of the dream, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You, Joseph, shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. (laughs) Wow. What a promotion. Joseph is going to be second in command. Now, God is in all of this. He has been weaving the threads to the pattern he has planned uh, as we talk about the master's design. It was, we've seen already uh, the thread of the broken home, and the thread of adversity, the thread of success, the thread of unfair treatment. And last week we looked at how God can use the thread of disappointments. Now, this morning, the relevance of Joseph's position, as we just read in verse 39 and 40, as governor here, it's front and center. It is no small thing that the one in charge of the palace, the one in charge of the whole land of Egypt, the one in charge of the day to day operations, is in this position when a God ordained disaster strikes. It's not a coincidence. And it's no coincidence as well that there's a disaster that comes upon the land of Egypt and all the surrounding countries. You see, it's in desperate times, church, that God gets our attention. It's in desperate times that God gets our attention. This morning, we'll see how God will use the thread of desperation to bring healing to a fractured relationship. All right, Trey. you're going to travel with me on the road to reconciliation. And it's all, first of all, my first heading, it's all driven by a famine. It's all driven by a famine. As told in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, you find that in chapter 39, I'm not going to read it, I'll just tell you what it was about. There's going to be a worldwide famine uh, of seven years. And because of God's hand on Joseph and his family, the Egyptians were forewarned of this famine so that they would be given seven years to prepare for it. They would enjoy seven years of great abundance, and in that time, they would fill their storehouses with grain. Joseph was the man put in charge of collecting all the food produced in the seven years of abundance and storing it in the cities throughout Egypt when the seven years of famine hit Joseph was in charge of selling to the Egyptians as well as the starving people from other countries meanwhile back in Canaan meanwhile back in Canaan Joseph's family was not doing well as their homeland was devastated by the famine and so Joseph's dad, Jacob, caught wind of some grain in Egypt. And so now look with me at chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? Huh, I love that. Every parent in this room understand that question. Kids on, on summer break might be sitting around bored as the grass needs to be mowed, their rooms need to be shoveled out, and the dog needs to be walked. And in a moment of exasperation, you cry, why don't you go and do something, anything? Just, just move away from the video game, from being on your phone lying in bed, and do something. Jacob's here, he's speaking to their lack of initiative. They all know there's a problem, there's a serious problem, they do nothing about it. They're just sitting around looking at each other. This is procrastination and it's worse. You know procrastination is three stages, right? First stage is you contemplate what needs to be done. Then the second stage, you contemplate how you need to do it. And then third stage is you contemplate. So you just keep contemplating, you don't move at all. And so Jacob says to them, in essence, stop sitting here twiddling your thumbs. Do something productive. We're starving, our crops are dried up, our land is barren. These are desperate times, he says to them. He says to them, you know, I just saw a post on Facebook that said there's some food in Egypt. So get off of you know know what and go get some. We need some food. And so all the brothers get up off the couch and they head to Egypt. Well, except Benjamin tells us in verse 4, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now, why would he think that? Well, Benjamin, by the way, was the other son born to his wife, Rachel. Joseph was of Rachel, too. Benjamin was the other son born to his wife, Rachel, who had passed away. And it seems like Benjamin kind of has become attached to the hip of Jacob and, and likely he was now the favored one since Joseph is gone. And the last time Jacob sent his favored one anywhere near the brothers 20 years ago, it didn't end so well. Jacob is taking no chances this time. It's really obvious here that Jacob still does not trust his 10 other sons. And verse 5 tells us so, Israel's sons, okay, they're going to make the trip now. We're among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Notice the beginning of verse 6 now Joseph, see, they're going to meet. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. But do you see it here: God is going to force the issue. I mean, is means God doing that in your life. He's going kind to of force the issue. You got kind of to want to put it over here. And you go, no, no, I'm going to make you look at this. You got a fractured relationship. You need to deal with it, and that's what He's doing here. They have a fractured relationship needs to be addressed, and in these desperate times, their survival is not only physical; it's spiritual. The family cannot survive until they are first reconciled with Joseph. And so the God-ordained famine drives everything else in these chapters. God uses this this famine, these desperate times, to get them on the road to reconciliation. So we're going to take three trips for this reconciliation to take place. You, You might see them as conditions for reconciliation, Conditions for reconciliation. All right, their first trip, their first journey, I'm entitling uh, Consciences Awakened. Consciences Awakened. Rest of verse 6 of chapter 42. so, So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him. They bowed down to them with their faces to the ground. Whoa, that's Joseph's dream of 20 years ago. And then verse 7 says, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he said, I'm Joseph. And see, you're bowing down to me just like I said. I told you so. No, he doesn't say that. Now, Joseph of 20 years ago, when he was 17, might have said that. God's been working in Joseph. He recognizes them immediately, but the brothers did not recognize Joseph. And you go, I don't think they don't recognize Joseph. Listen, it's been 20 years later. He's not a teenager anymore. He's 20 years later. They never expected that they'd find their brother second in command to, to Egypt, right? I mean, it's totally out of context. And actually, uh, Joseph thinks well on his feet here. and he, 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 It says he, he made himself unrecognizable. In the middle of verse 7 of the NIV, it says he pretended to be a stranger. Literally, that is, he disguised himself. And he looks at them, his mind is flooded with a dream, and this time he does keep quiet about it. But the remembering of his dream of Levin bowing down to him and seeing only 10 of his brothers in front of him, he thinks quickly on his feet to strategize how he's going to get the 11th brother back to Egypt. So he calls them Spies. And look at the brother's response to that accusation. They don't take too kindly to it. Verse 10, chapter 42. No, 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 my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men. Sort of. Not spies. Joseph said, no, 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 I'm not buying this. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. Verse 13. Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. I kind of like how they refer to Joseph there. He's Mr. No More. Out of sight, out of mind, no more. I mean, how would you like to be remembered as no more? Mr. No More knows they're not spies. They didn't know he knows, but he knows. And he's scheming some way to get Benjamin to Egypt. Now, we could have a long debate about whether it was right for Joseph to pretend like this. And I suppose such a discussion would be helpful. But I'm not really going to get into that. And whether his approach is to be copied by you in the situation that you're in right now, you're going to have to work that out for yourself. Compare Scripture with Scripture. But, but let's put that aside for a moment. You can, you can get me, take me out to breakfast and we can discuss it perhaps. But not now. Let's put that aside I don't want you to miss this. What Joseph is after here is to determine if there's a real change of heart among his brothers. Had they changed, I mean really changed. Now get this. Joseph, I believe, wisely withholds reconciliation until his brothers have acknowledged their sin and demonstrated true remorse. Because if there's any hope for reconciliation, there must be And awareness of wrongs. And so Joseph tests them. Is there any guilt over their wrong? Will they own? Will they blame? Look at verse 21. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. No, they didn't listen all they're eating lunch while he's pleading with them. And then it says, end of verse 21, that's why this distress has come upon us. The conscience that slept is being awakened. And Reuben says in verse 22, in essence, I told you so. I mean, he really steps up here, doesn't he? But he too, though, he really is feeling the weight of his sin. He says at the end of verse 22, we must give an accounting for his blood. Now, and the original of the we in verses 21 and 22 is emphatic. It's we are guilty. We saw how distressed he was. We would not listen. We must give an accounting. This is, a, this is a great start for them toward true repentance and bringing healing to this fractured relationship. They must take ownership. It is we, not dad's fault. It is we, not Joseph. He didn't give us those crazy dreams. We wouldn't have done that to him. No, 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 there's none of that. We are responsible. We are to blame. And if that's where you are in some fractured relationship right now, you may need to do the same. You can look at what's happening and you can blame your circumstances. You can blame all the other people around you. They made you do it or they at least made it hard for you to do it. And there may be some truth in that. But it doesn't matter. At some point you need to own what you need to own. There was a a manager of a a minor league baseball team and he was so disgusted with the center fielder's performance out on the field that he he, he ordered him back into the dugout and the manager assumed the position of a center fielder himself. So he went out in center field and the first ball that came into center field took this bad hop and hit the manager right in the mouth. The next one was a high fly ball which got lost in the glare of the sun and, and it bounced off his head. Not doing so well. The third one out to the center field was a hard line drive that he charged with his glove and he missed it and it flew past his glove and smacked him in the eye. Furious, he ran back to the dugout. He grabbed the center fielder by the uniform and he shouted in his face. He said, see what you did? You've got center field so messed up that even I can't do a thing with it. (laughs) He's still blaming the other guy. It's not my circus. It's not me missing it. You messed it up. Is it, sometime, is, it, is it time for you to own some things in your life around some relationship? Perhaps God's using some famine-like hardship, some desperate circumstance in your life to drive you towards reconciliation. Might God be forcing the issue for you right now? Brothers' consciences are awakened They begin to take ownership. Joseph's hearing this whole conversation. It says in verse, I think it's 24, and he weeps. It shows us the tenderness of Joseph, even in the midst of him earlier being harsh. As his brothers own their wrong, get this, he does not gloat, he weeps. He doesn't go yeah well that's what they should be they should be all upset because of how they do no he weeps and this is the reason why I don't think he's playing around with them right here making them squirm I don't think he's going this route kind of as a payback for what they did to him I don't I think you I think that's wrong speculation I don't think this is about giving them a taste of their own medicine I don't think he's doing that you can work that out I think he wisely withholds reconciliation until his brothers have acknowledged their sin and demonstrated true remorse. And so he does put them through a test. Is your conscience of a wrong been speaking to you? Is it maybe speaking to you right now? As someone put it, conscience is the small clear voice deep down inside of you where the acoustics are very bad. You might remember that Edgar Allan Poe's The Tell-Tale Heart, right? I don't know if you read that story, but, but the murderer, after he, he murdered his, his victim, he retires that evening, and he couldn't sleep because he kept hearing the heart of the dead man. He kept hearing it. But he didn't really hear the victim's heart at all, did he? He heard his own heart's. And it kept him awake. The guilt overpowered him. The power of a guilty conscience. And you know what? Time itself doesn't erase guilt. It doesn't. As Huck Finn once observed, a man's conscience takes up more room than all the rest of his insides. Is Your conscience being awakened... Because owning up to some wrong is going to get you on the right road to road to reconciliation. All right, let's go take our second trip, our second journey on this road to reconciliation. Banquet of Grace, chapter 43, Banquet of Grace. It's our second condition of reconciliation. Now here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Joseph, Joseph here, he imprisons Simeon, promising his release. When the rest of the brothers go back to Canaan, and they have to come back to Egypt with Benjamin in hand. So they're keeping Simeon. And as they travel back to Canaan to get Benjamin, Joseph secretly arranged it that their bags are filled with the money they had brought to buy the grain. And when they discover, the brothers discover the returned money, the boys, they all start to panic. They don't see it as a generous act at all, but that it needs to be returned. But before they can return it, they have to convince dad to let Benjamin go back to Egypt with them. And that's a pretty big ask. Jacob already lost one. 20 years later, and he still has this hole in his heart from Joseph being gone. J- Jacob really can't see past his own hurt here. He can't see God in this. He, he can't see the generosity of his sons returning with grain and they didn't even pay a cent for it. And so the question for Jacob is, could he entrust Benjamin to God's care or has he? Or is he going to kind of hold on to him? Because they had the grain, their money was returned. All they had to do was return to Egypt and show, the, uh, show the, the, the governor of the land of Egypt that they really did have a younger brother and they'd been telling the truth. And Simeon, who was left uh, there in and Egypt, would be released. And Jacob's pretty stubborn here. He said, No, Benjamin's not going. Then desperate times strike again. God forces the issue, they run out of food. And Jacob then says to his sons in chapter 43, verse 2, go back, meaning to Egypt, buy us a little more food. And the boys say, Dad, you don't understand. We've already been through this. We cannot go back to Egypt to get more food without bringing along Benjamin. As long as you're saying Benjamin can't come with us, we cannot go back and get anything. And Well, desperate times call for desperate measures, so Jacob reluctantly gives in. And off they all go. A second time to Egypt. This time Benjamin's with him. In chapter 43, notice verse 16 with me. Chapter 43, verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal. They are to eat with me at noon. Verse 17. The man did as Joseph told them, took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men, meaning the brothers, were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought... We were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He is going to attack us, overpower us, and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. That's what's going on here. They're totally suspicious of the whole thing that Joseph's offering to them, this dinner date. Their guilt is still plaguing them, and they question the intent of the dinner invitation. You see, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind, Shakespeare says. And they can't relax. they're all worked up. they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And they don't know what's going to happen. And Joseph Stewart tries to calm their fears. Look at verse 23. "It's all right. don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your Father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received it. Uh, you paid it, but I just gave it back to you." S saying. And then Simeon, who was kept in prison until they returned, uh, is now released. Now here's the thing: Joseph generously gives back the money. He now wants to feed them dinner. But they feel so undeserving of all that that they're uptight when they should be grateful. Joseph, he puts on quite a banquet for them. I mean, it's quite a spread. Whatever you might think of. I mean, there's lobster tails and there's and there's T-bone steaks and there's loaded baked potatoes and there's fried mushrooms and and, and there's you know, shrimp on a Barbie, right? Best wine perhaps. All of it, a big spread. Benjamin, he receives preferential treatment. He's given five times the amount of food than his brothers. Listen, they were dining with the governor. It is a banquet table of grace. And the final words of chapter 43 sum it all up. And they say, so they feasted and drank freely with Joseph's demonstration of grace freed up everyone else around the tables. That's what grace does. They're on the receiving end of grace and kindness they hadn't earned. They didn't deserve. Joseph could have reminded them of all their wrongs. He could have forced them to pay for their cruelty. But instead, he shows them extravagant grace. Joseph's willingness To let them off the hook for their mistreatment of him open the way for the healing of this fractured relationship. You can't miss this part. Is it time for you to let go of the hurt that wants to retaliate, that wants to make someone pay for what they did and instead determine to forgive and extend an act of grace generously, an extravagant amount of grace? Why wouldn't we? God has laid before us a banquet of grace and it is so perplexing as to why God would show us such kindness when we know we don't deserve it. Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness leads us toward repentance. So if God's doing that in your life and as you kind of recall what God has done that in your life, don't push against it. Don't fight what God wants to give you. Receive it. Feast and drink freely in His riches, His provisions His grace. Release that hurt to him. Walk in his grace so that you're in a better position to extend that same kind of grace to others. Yes, to those who don't deserve it. The brothers own their wrongs. It's an awakened conscience. Joseph extends grace and kindness. The table is set for healing, for reconciliation. But there's one more thing. One more condition. Third trip on this road to reconciliation is rebuilding trust. Rebuilding trust. That's what I believe chapter 44 is all about. As we come to chapter 44, the boys are about to head back home to Canaan. The brothers, they're free to go. And so they head off and they don't get very far. Because their trip home uh, is short as Joseph, again, sets it up to make it look like Benjamin is guilty of stealing a silver cup from the palace. They knew they hadn't taken it. But they're forced to do a U-turn and go back to Egypt and stand before the governor, Joseph. And before Joseph would reveal his identity, he needed to to have some answers to some questions. Questions like, were they really remorseful? Do they they still have a deep-seated jealousy in their hearts? I mean, had they changed? Did they care about, about dad's feelings? Would they choose themselves over Benjamin? And verse 16 of chapter 44, Judas speaking here. Let's catch this. What can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. You know, in other words, they found the silver cup in Benjamin's bag here. We're we're now Now my Lord's 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 slaves. We ourselves, ourselves the one who was found to have the the cup, all of us. See,
1: the the real evidence evidence of repentance repentance would
0: be their actions toward Benjamin. And Joseph answers, far be it for me to do such a thing. No, no, only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, you go back to your father in peace. And so they're all free to leave and return home, but Benjamin could not go with them. Judah speaks up again. Now, remember, Judah was the one who was most adamant about killing Joseph 20 years earlier. And when Reuben stepped in and stopped the brothers from killing Joseph, Judah again was the first one to suggest they sell him to the slave traders. That's Judah. This time around, though, he pleads for his younger brother, Benjamin. Look at verse 33. Now then, please, please let your servant remain here, meaning myself as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, Benjamin. Let Benjamin return with his brothers. You see the self-sacrifice of Judah. No, 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 no. Take me instead, he says. They don't turn on Benjamin like they did Joseph. He's a changed man. Continues verse 34. He says, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, 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 do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. This is not the same Judah of 20 years ago who didn't give a rip about his dad's feelings. Joseph's seeing change before his eyes. The fractured relationship as a hope. Some hope here to be restored. There's hope for healing for this family. But I want us to see here, Joseph doesn't rush the healing. We like to. We want to fix it. Move quickly around things. Ignore them. No, no, he allowed God to work. But he needed to know, can he trust them? One commentator said, Joseph cannot trust himself to them until he knows that they're trustworthy. Now, folks, that is good word for all of us. In the Christian community sometimes, we can be so accepting that we extend trust where there's been no opportunity for the other person to prove trustworthiness. Oh, no, we just got to love you. Come on in. Grace, you got it. I know what you... Nah, don't worry about it. Okay. It's well-intentioned. It's misguided, though. Trust has to be rebuilt slowly through our actions over time. It is a condition for full reconciliation to take place. Now it's different than forgiveness which is one way and we're going to talk about that next week. But reconciliation is two way It takes time. It only happens what a person does and not what a person says like the man who kept throwing water on the waiter's face. Words are not enough to prove you're sorry. So reconciliation requires awakened conscience where there's an ownership of wrongs. It calls for grace, extravagant grace and it requires trust to be rebuilt. So I ask you, any fractured relationship needing mending right now? What's your part in this? Do you need to own? Do you need to extend grace? Is it trust and you need to honor that process? What is it? So, any fractured relationship in your life needing mending? And might God be using a desperate situation to lead you to reconciliation? Might He be forcing the issue? Pay attention to that. There were two brothers who lived on adjoining farms, but they had this deep, deep quarrel. They had often shared their resources, but that practice stopped, and instead there was just uh, this this deep bitterness. One morning, one of the brothers, John, he answered the knock at his door, and at the door was this carpenter, and the carpenter asked, is there any work that I can do around here? John said, well, you know what, There, there was something you can do. And he took the carpenter out to where the two properties he and his brothers met. And and he showed him, this carpenter, how the other brother had taken a bulldozer and created this creek where the meadow used to be. And John said to the carpenter, I know he did this to make me angry. I want you to help me get even by building this big fence so I won't have to see him or his property ever again. Well, the carpenter went out and he did his thing. He finished his work and grabbed John by the arm, and he said, come on, I want you to see what I built. And John noticed that there there was no fence. The carpenter had used his skill and built a bridge over the creek instead of a fence. John's brother saw the bridge that was built over this creek, and he was quite moved that his brother would do such a thing. And so the two brothers, they sat down, they talked in the middle of the bridge and began to work out their differences. They saw the carpenter packing his tools and they said, no, 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 we want you to stay a little while and do more work. And the carpenter replied, no, I'm sorry, but I have other bridges to build. (laughs) Does he have to build one in your life? Any bridges you need to build towards someone else? Or do you got this nice fence and wall up? Any bridges? You see, no situation, no story, whatever it is for you, is beyond God's reach to redeem it. None. How bad he might think it is. None.